Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Billy speaks about the name and nature of God and how vital it is to understand them rightly. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Part four of Teach Us to Pray, and with that, I want to pray, and then we'll get into the message, all right? Thank you, Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Everything you want to do in us and through us and in our lives and how you want to change us, I'm asking, do, do measures of it tonight. And for many of us, I just pray you'd, you'd completely reorient the way we think about you tonight. And so Holy Spirit, be the teacher. Speak to us. Change us. Transform us tonight. Lord, I ask release revelation in the room. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. All right, we're on part four. As I said, teach us to pray. Um, how many has been here the entire series? Let's just see. All right, good, okay. So we've been going through uh, the Lord's Prayer and explaining about how in Matthew 6, when Jesus laid out the Lord's Prayer, how it was a prayer format. It wasn't a prayer to be repeated. In fact, the, the verses just before he lays that out for us, he literally says, don't say prayer over and over and over to repeat them, thinking that you're going to be heard just because you say a prayer over and over and over. He goes, but when you pray, pray in this manner, pray this way. And he lays out a template, a format that is the Lord's Prayer, but it really shows us how to go about praying. And what you find out when you get into the Lord's Prayer is this, that the first five things that he tells us to pray are actually not about us. They're all about him. Which brings us to this point that when we pray, we don't start with ourselves, we start with God. Can I get an amen? And so that's the key. And so he starts with our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So there's first three things. Our Father, who is he? In heaven, where is he? And then hallowed be thy name. That, that's literally what is he like. And I'll explain that connection. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight just in an introductory way, but what is he like? And this is one of the biggest boundaries, one of the biggest barriers, I think, to people having a good prayer life. It's that they think that God is different than he really is. And because they picture him as different than he really is, they don't end up wanting to spend time with him and they don't want to talk to him. And so nobody wants to talk to somebody that they think is always going to like smite them or kill them or judge them or whatever. And so when people think about God as primarily a judge, when they think about God as primarily angry and mostly frustrated, they tend to have a very difficult time engaging in prayer. But I want to tell you something. God is not mostly uh, angry. He's not mostly mad. He's not mostly frustrated. God is mostly joyful, and he's mostly glad. Biblically, he's mostly joyful, and he's mostly glad. In fact, the Bible says this about Jesus, that Jesus is the express image of God. He was the, the, the glory of God in dwelling a human, uh, a human frame. He's God in the flesh. 
and that everything that you see that the Father is like, that's what you see expressed in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I only do what I see my Father do, and I only say what I hear my Father say. So Jesus is expressing the nature of God. And the Bible says this about Jesus. It says that in Hebrews 1 and in Psalm 45, that Jesus Christ was the most joyful man that ever lived. So if Jesus is the most joyful man that ever lived, and Jesus is the express image of the Father, what does that tell you about the Father? He's not mostly angry and mostly frustrated. He's mostly glad and mostly joyful. Here's another point I want to pull out. In his presence is fullness of joy. Have you ever been around somebody who's mostly angry, mostly frustrated, mostly negative, but around them it's just joyful? No, because it doesn't work that way. But when you've been around somebody that's super joyful, that's like super positive, you just get, you just like to be in their presence. Why? Because what they're like comes off of them and it's around them, isn't it? So if in his presence is fullness of joy, where's the joy coming from? Him. And so here's what I want to ask you, that when you close your eyes and when you look to the Father and you begin to pray, what are you imagining that he's like? How are you imagining that he's looking at you? What do you think is going on inside of him? Because this, if you think he's negative, you think he's mostly angry, if you think he's mostly frustrated, you won't pray. You will not. Prayer will feel like a drudgery. Prayer will feel like something that you're having to work up. It'll feel like you've gone in front of the judge who's ready to, like, sentence you, and you're, like, begging and pleading for some sort of, like, give me a better sentence because I know that, like, you really don't like me. But that's not it at all. He delights in you. He delights in you. He takes pleasure in you. That's what he's like. And on the inside, he's filled with joy, filled with pleasure. And so when you come before him, he smiles. Do you picture him smiling at you? Do you picture him delighting in you? When you recognize him for who he really is, and all of a sudden, these false images of God, they begin to fade Man, your prayer life will explode because you'll realize he's the safest one there is. He's the kindest one there is, and you cannot lose with him. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk about who he is. We're going to talk about his nature. So we've gave, we've gave away a bunch of A.W. Tozer, Knowledge of the Holy Books. How many got a Knowledge of the Holy? Let me just see hands everywhere. Read them, and as I think, was it Bridges? I think, yeah, you said, well, no, 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 it wasn't. It was, it was Anthony Pediori. He said, read it like one sentence at a time, <laughs> one paragraph at a time, and then take a break and think about it because it's that kind of a rich book. It's thick, rich and thick, and for all the fruity people, it's not fruit. It's chocolate. I mean, it's really good, and so it just goes, it goes and hits you in that way where you've got to, like, consider it, think about it. But here's one of the things that Tozer said, and he says it in Knowledge of the Holy. He says, the most important thing about a person is what that person thinks about God. That determines everything about you. 
The way you think about God is the most important thing about you because it determines everything about you. It determines how you relate to God, and it determines how you relate to others, and it determines how you relate to yourself. The most important thing about you is how you think about God. He also said this, this quote. I just Now hang in there with me on this quote. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind, and it may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. Yeah. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. He goes on to say that the idolater simply thinks things about God that are unworthy of God and acts as if they're true. Because now you're acting toward God in a way that's not him, and you're actually acting like he's not who he is. You've made another God out of him. And you're literally walking around operating in a way toward God that is It's beneath him. It's so far beneath him because it's not who he is. He says, that's the essence of idolatry. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to worship an idol that I made in my own mind. I don't want to worship God on terms that I made up. The the children of Israel, they were guilty of making a God in their own image and likeness. They didn't didn't worship God for who he was. They actually created a God that they could control, a God that they could form and fashion, a God that that they could get their arms around, and they made a calf. I mean, how infinitely beneath God is a freaking gold calf? But that's what we all do. When we don't see him for who he is and when we don't know what he's really like, We make a God in our own image, and we make him like us or something that we can manage. And he literally said that to the nation of Israel. He says, you thought I was altogether like you, but I'm nothing like you. He goes, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. Because I'm completely not like you. What, what we tend to think that means is he's so much more severe. He's so much more, like, you know, intense in a negative way. And the truth of the matter is he's so much more kind. He's so much more generous. He's so much more gentle. God is far more gentle than any person in this room. He's far more gentle than any person you've ever met. Because the measure of someone's gentleness is the power that they possess And how much they yield and hold that power back. And his gentleness quotient is infinite. Am I making sense yet? Mm. See, when we find out a little bit about who he is, then I want to be with him. What he's like. When I find out a little bit about what he's like, I want to be with him. 
All right, so hallowed be your name. That's the, that's the part of the, the prayer that we're on right now. That's the, that's the part of the, the uh, template that we're on right now. How does hallowed be your name translate to what God is like? Hallowed, that word just simply means different, unique, set apart, other than. It's a way to say holy, hallowed. It's set apart. But the key is your name. Holy is your name. Set apart is your name. And what you have to realize this, uh, what you really have to realize about God is this, that his name declares his nature. Okay? So what we're going to end up with tonight is we're going to look at when he declared his name to Moses and expressed his nature. And so when when Jesus taught us the prayer, hallowed be your name, he says, set apart is your nature. What you're like is different. Our Father in heaven, we talked about heaven last week. We talked about the throne room. So different are you. What are you really like? And that's my prayer tonight is as we look into who he is, what he's really like, it transforms the way we think about him and the way that we respond to him and the way that we act with him. Amen. All right. Um, this is in the notes. It'll be in the group me tonight. And yeah, tap in on the group me because we have announcements. We have all sorts of different things that goes on in the group me. But I put the notes on the messages every week in the group me. But what I want to give you is five ways biblically that God reveals himself. I'm imagining that you get my notes and that you look at the Bible verses and you use these to study. I'm just dreaming that that's happening. I know all of you are doing that. But I'm taking time with these for those that want to do that, that want to get into the verses, that want to go deeper, that want to take some time in your, your week this week and study and go a little deeper. I'm putting them in there for you. I don't put it in there mostly. I, I mostly don't look at my notes when I teach. I don't know if you noticed that. I mostly look at y'all. But I, I could make them way less detailed and still teach the same stuff. But I'm giving it to you so that there's depth that you can go into on your own. So, but here's five ways God reveals himself. And that's what we want to think about tonight is what, what is going on in the Bible when God's revealing himself? What does that look like? We're going to zero in on one of these five, but there's five different ways and there's, this is probably, there's probably 10 ways. There's five different ways that I'm highlighting that God reveals himself. All right, first, it's self-disclosure. It's what God says about himself. I want you to think about Bible verses where God says to us what he's like. That's the most credible and clear way that you can understand who God is. And that should plumb line you into the whole rest of the biblical narrative. What God says he's like, so that when you are seeing things that are happening in the biblical narrative and you go, wait a minute, this seems like, you know, intense or, or harsh or something like that, you can go back and look at it. God said he's like this, so how does this action and this line up with who he really is? So his self-disclosure is when he speaks of himself, when he explains his nature. 
Um, it's, it's how he tells us that he is. It's, it's what he expresses himself as. These are passages, those passages in Scripture, you really, really, really want to pay close attention to those. Secondly, I'm going to teach you a word tonight, biblical theophanies. Everybody say theophanies. How many know what a theophany is? Yes, three. Okay, okay. Theo, T-H-E-O, phany, P-H-A-N-Y, theophany. If you know those two, those two parts of the, the word, you know what this is. It's a God appearance, a God manifestation. It's when God shows up in the Bible. There's some of my favorite passages I mean, you have it in Exodus um, 19 and 20 when God comes down on the mountain in front of the entire nation. 2.2 million people see God come down. Most people don't realize that he gives the Ten Commandments and the whole nation of Israel hears it audibly. It's not just Moses wrote it on a tablet. It's they actually hear God's voice. 2.2 million people hear God speak. Uh, Job 38 to 42, it's my favorite one. Because this young man, Elihu, he, de he declares that when a voice speaks, God thunders. And then after Elihu gets done speaking, God literally shows up in a whirlwind and begins to thunder. And for five chapters, the, the, most people hate the book of Job because it's pretty negative for about 34 or five chapters. But the last six chapters, you got, you got uh, last seven chapters. Two of them are Elihu. He's this young guy who's speaking the right knowledge of God. But five of them are God speaking. Those last 38 to 42, those last five chapters, they're amazing. It's God literally setting Job and his three friends completely right. And, and he, he says this thing. He says this thing to Job. He says, gird yourself like a man. And I will tell you the truth about who I am. You never want God to say that to you. He literally says, gird your loins. I don't know exactly what he's getting at there. But yeah, put your big boy pants on right now. Because I'm about to <laughs> set you straight. It's one of my favorite five chapters to read because it is so intense that God is coming in hot. And he's setting everybody straight. It is so awesome. Daniel 7, Daniel 7, he sees the Father and the Son manifest. It's powerful. Ezekiel 1, you read Ezekiel 1, you're like, there's a wheel within a wheel with eyes all over it, four-faced living creatures. It's like the spirit of the living creatures is in the wheels. I don't know how that works, but wow. It's like <laughs> this is a whirlwind of fire with lightning engulfing itself. You're like, what the heck is that? It's God <laughs> showing up. He literally takes the throne room, and he gets the portable version. It's an entire chariot he's riding in, and he comes down on the plain outside of the River Chibar. River Chibar. Everybody say Chibar. It's right there <laughs> where, where Ezekiel's in captivity, and he literally takes the throne room on a throne room chariot and comes down. Yeah. And then Revelation 1, I love that one. 
We talked about it last week a little bit. John's on the Isle of Patmos. He, he hears a voice behind him. He turns to see the voice, and Jesus is standing there in his glorified state. We haven't seen Jesus in that state yet. They saw it for momentary glimpses on the Mount of Transfiguration where he shined bright white, but now John is dealing with just him and Jesus, and Jesus has got the full glory turned up to 10. Eyes of fire, face like the sun, voice like the sound of many waters. It's so intense that John, Jesus' best friend, when John sees him, he falls at his feet like a dead man. It's a theophany. God showing up, manifesting himself. All right, so that's the second way. Third way is obviously the incarnation. We just talked about that, how Jesus Christ is the express image of God. So when Jesus comes in the flesh, it's God in the flesh, God the Son displaying the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his per person. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15 says. You can't skip the incarnation when you're trying to figure out what God is like. Jesus is showing everyone what God's like. Fourthly, indwelling Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us, Jesus told us this, that the Father and Jesus would come and make their home in us. And when they come and make their home in us, that the Holy, he would, they would do it by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would disclose God to us. I don't know about you, but I want God to disclose himself to me. That's, what, that's how I want to live. I do not want to live from the earth to the earth without ever having heaven crash in on me. I want to live getting heaven's perspective, changing the way I think about everything I'm doing in this life. And one of the chief ways that that's supposed to happen is my Holy Spirit on the inside unpacking the mysteries of God to me, disclosing the Father, disclosing the Son. Look, this is not just preacher talk for preachers. This is for all believers. Holy Spirit is on the inside of you, for you, to unpack God to you. That's, that's, I mean, that's one of the most powerful, beautiful thoughts about our redemption is that we have God on the inside. Come on. And then fifthly, I couldn't leave this out, his mighty acts. David said this in Psalm 145, men shall speak of your might. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. And he's tying two together to the two things, the greatness of God in his actions and what that tells of him. So I want to dial in specifically about God and self-disclosure, okay? Because I would just say this, a thousand times, this is very practical, a thousand times when the enemy has come to me and begin to lie to my mind and tell me what God is like and deceive and distort the image of God to me, I go back to a singular passage where God said what he's like to get rid of the lies of the enemy coming against my mind. Okay, you always are experiencing the enemy attacking your mind to distort the image of God. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, 4, and 5 describes this. It says that the strongholds that the enemy tries to set up in your mind are all against the knowledge of God. He's always attacking the knowledge of God. 
because the most important thing about you is what you think about God. And if he can twist your image and of the knowledge of God, if he can twist the way you think that God is, if he can twist and distort in your mind the way you relate to God, he can take everything from you. He can cause you to serve an idol. He can cause you to stop praying. He can cause you to get in fear. He can cause you to get out of safety. He can cause you to try to do all sorts of things on your own because you don't think God's there for you. So every attack of the enemy against you, it's not just to scare you. It's actually to tell you God won't come through for you. God isn't safe. God doesn't love you. God won't protect you. He's always distorting and twisting the image of who God is. That's what every stronghold is built up in people's mind against is who is God. It's always the question. That's why Jesus asked the disciples when it was all getting intense and Jesus finally asked the disciples, he goes, who do you say that I am? He started with, who do men say that I am? They said, well, some think John the Baptist, some think one of the prophets. Well, who do you say that I am? Because that's really what matters. And that's what matters for you right now is who do you say God is? Because everything about you is based on who you think he is. So I want to take you to this singular passage. This is the passage that I have gone back to thousands of times when the enemy has come against my mind to twist and distort the image of the knowledge of God in my life. This is the one, all right? It's in Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34. I'm going to give you the backstory, then we're going to read the passage, okay? So here's the backstory. The children of Israel have been delivered out of Egypt. They watched God drop 10 plagues on Egypt. God destroyed the most powerful army in the entire world to set the people of God free so that they could come out and become God's own special people, a special possession to worship God, to enter into betrothal with God. He actually calls it a marriage covenant through Jeremiah. He said, I betrothed you to me. I gave you my offer to marry me. That's what God was doing with Israel. He's bringing them into this intimate marital relationship. So they've been at this place called Mount Sinai. They've been there for about a year. And at Mount Sinai, that's where they got the Ten Commandments. That's where God came down on the mountain in flaming glory. That's where God offered them the betrothal to be married, to be his own special people. That's where they all heard the Lord speak the Ten Commandments audibly. That's where they turned away from God and created the golden calf, like I mentioned earlier. That's where the elders of Israel went up on the mountain with Moses and saw God come down. They saw the feet of God on the sapphire pavement. That was at Mount Sinai. That's where Moses had several different 40-day seasons of glorious encounter on the mountain with God. And now what's happened in Exodus 33, through all these ups and downs that the nation of Israel has gone through, they've been delivered. God has set them free. God's come close to them. God said, I want to make you my own special people. The people of Israel said, okay, we want that. And then when they heard God speak audibly in Exodus uh, 20, they backed away. They said, Moses, you go in. We don't want any of that. God had just invited the entire nation to be priests. You know, you're operating in a priestly identity right now because what the nation of Israel said no to, Jesus came and secured for each of us, that we're able to come to God by the blood of Jesus 
and enter right into the throne room like we talked about last night. You're standing in priesthood. Even tonight as you're worshiping and we're feeling the presence of God, you're experiencing the blessings of being a priest. Come on now. And so here's where they're at. God looks at Moses and he says, all right, it's time for you guys to leave Sinai. There's a land that I've promised to take the nation into. I promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here's the deal. God says, I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send my angel. My angel will go before you, will secure the promise. But I'm not going to be in your midst. And when Moses hears that, it pierces him. It breaks him. And then it gives us this little, you got to read Exodus 33 tonight or tomorrow, whenever. you got to read this. It gives us this little five-verse little interlude and explains why this hit Moses so hard. And here's why. When God began to minister to the nation of Israel there at Sinai and the glory of God was showing up, Moses took his own tent and he went outside the camp. And he set his tent up outside the camp. And the glory of God would appear over Moses' tent. And Moses would go in there with him and Joshua, his assistant, and the glory of God would cover Moses' tent. And the whole nation would see the fire and glory there hovering over Moses' tent. And that the people would come out to the doors of their tent. They would turn towards Moses' tent, and they would just worship the presence of God there manifest. And it says, God spoke to Moses like a man speaks to his friend face to face. This is Moses' day in and day out. This is how he lived. And it said that when Moses would be finished speaking to the Lord, Moses would depart the tent, but Joshua would stay in the tent and bask in the presence. I think this. I think a lot of people look at Moses' encounters, and they want the same encounters that Moses had. But what God wants to put in an entire generation is the culture that Joshua had. Not to leave the presence. And so the, Exodus 33 gives us that little portion to show us what's going on in Moses, that Moses is absolutely wrecked over the presence of God. He's absolutely destroyed. And for him to think that God's not going with them, that those moments of friendship and face-to-face -face encounter, that they're done because the angel of the Lord is coming, but God's not coming himself. Moses is completely torn up over this. <coughs> and so Moses says, he goes, how are you going to send me to do this thing and you're not going to come with me? He goes, I don't even know what you're like. He said, you, you told me your favor would be with me, but I don't even know who you are. All I know is you said, I am that I am, I, but I don't know your glory. The glory of God is the depths of who God is. It's not just the light show and the power. It's the depths of the person of God. The deepest part of God, that's the glory of God. It's who he is and what he's like. And then Moses gets to this place of extreme boldness. He goes, if I found favor in your sight, don't send me up by myself. He goes, I don't even want my calling if you're not coming with me. 
You know what I realize about so many people? They're more interested in their calling than they are in God. They're satisfied in doing something for God and not actually being intimate with God. I don't want any calling. I don't want one more platform or one more microphone if I don't have the heart of God. If I don't have his presence in my life, it's all a fraud. We've seen too many in ministry doing all sorts of ministry calling and ministry doings, and they don't have the glory of God present in their life. They've been satisfied to work for God and live without God. Never be satisfied in that. Hear me, I don't care if you're called to the marketplace or the ministry place. Never be satisfied to live your life without the manifestation of God's presence. You will live shallow and hollow. And all you'll do is multiply non-breakthrough Christianity. We've had enough of that. We've had enough of cotton candy. We've had enough of sort of just going through the motions. We need something real and we need a people who will not stop until they get something real in their life. I don't want one more microphone if it means I don't have his presence. I sat in my office tonight. I said, God, I need you. I can't just get up there and teach another thing. I need you. And that's what Moses came to. He came to grips with this fact that fulfilling his calling as the great deliverer of Israel means nothing if God doesn't come. I don't care what your calling is. I want to know, do you have God manifesting in your life? Are you close to him? Do you know what he's like? That's all I really care about. So Moses gets this divine boldness on him, and he finally says, God God says, I'll go with you, Moses. And then Moses goes, awesome. So it's not the angel anymore. It's you. It's you coming, awesome, good, now show me your glory. Like Moses already got God to promise to be there with him in, his, in, in the place, in the midst of them, and then Moses goes, you know what? I mean, on the inside, I just imagine him going like, I'm on a roll, I might as well just go for this one too. Show me your glory. And God responds, he says, no one's ever seen my face and lived. But it's an amazing passage. So let's pick it up here in Exodus 33, verse 18. Guys, this is this one means a lot to me. as honest and real as I know how to be, this passage has meant as much to me my whole life as any passage. He said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness. If you're reading this in paper, just underline glory and then underline goodness. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord, underline that, name of the Lord before you. 
I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, underline my face. For no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory, you can underline my glory, passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. He basically says this. God, I want you to give me everything of you. And, Moses, and God answers Moses and says, if I give you everything, it will kill you. But I will take you to the brink. I will pass by you. I'll make all my goodness come before you. I will cover you and shield you so you can't see my face, but you'll see my backside as I come past. And I'll declare my name to you. I'm going to take you, Moses, and I'm going to bring you to the brink of what any human can handle without it sending him on a direct one-way right to the throne room. Here's what I want to point out. When you look at that passage, you realize this, that God uses the word glory, his goodness, his name, and his face all interchangeably. Moses says, show me your glory. He goes, I'll make my goodness come before you. He goes, you can't see my face. He goes, but I asked to see your glory. He goes, right, the glory of God resides in the face of God. He goes, you can't see my face, but I will declare my name to you. Name, glory, goodness, face, he uses them all interchangeably. They're all different Hebrew words, but they all express the same idea, the depth of who God is, the beauty and the wonder of him. And so when you read that passage, realize that Moses is asking for something that would kill him, and God says, I'll give you everything but killing you. Now let's just flip over one page to 34. So here's what happens. I've been kind of weepy all day. I watched a movie on the plane, and it just messed me up. It wasn't even, it wasn't like some holy movie. It was a movie that was just speaking things to me about God, about myself. I just, I want to be a man that knows God. I want to love well. Exodus 34, verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud. Can you, can you, come on. Show me your glory. And God goes, okay. I'll come. I want hunger like what Moses had. Sometimes when I wonder, sometimes I wonder when we're saying, God, we want you to come. No spirit like the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit, come, come, come. Are we saying it for real? Or do we just like the rhythm and the beat and the melody? Come, come, come. Are we really wanting him to come? What if he did come? Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Can you imagine? He heard this with his own ears. He saw the glory come with his own eyes. And this is what he heard. This is what the Lord said. The Lord, the Lord God. In Hebrew, Jah or Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh El. That's what he heard. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is the name of the Lord. It's not just YWHW. YHWH. Yahweh, yeah, YHWH. It's not just that. It's the nature of God. This is his nature. This is repeated dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. So often in the Psalms, so often in the prophets, when they're referencing God, they begin to call on his nature. We know you to be long-suffering and merciful, abounding in goodness and truth. They call on the name and the nature of God. Listen, friends, when you're when you're praying, when you're worshiping, when you're interceding, when you're going through it, when the enemy's attacking, when things are jacked up, when everything is upside down, when nothing's working, you, you have to come back right here to Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord God, you're merciful. You're gracious. You're abounding in goodness and truth. You're long-suffering. You keep mercy for thousands of generations. This is who you are. You forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is who you are. And I'm, I'm staking my whole life on this, that you're not evil and you're not angry. You're not mostly mad and disappointed in me. You're merciful and you're patient. You're kind. You're gentle. David said his gentleness has made me great. You're compassionate. You understand my frailty. I love Psalm 103. He knows your frame. He knows that you're made from dust. He knows. He knows you're weak and prone to failure. He's kind. I look at these verses, I look at these words, and I just go, man, if I don't know you this way, then I don't know you at all. 
It's important that when God said his name, I believe he put this in a structure that was expressing himself. At the core, he was describing the very essences of love. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh El, merciful. Do you know him as mercy? Have you dealt with the fact that your sin is dirty, it's scarlet, your sin, it put Jesus on the cross, but when you come to the Father, he says, little one, it's okay, I'm mercy, I'm mercy. See, you can't comprehend mercy unless you stare your own depravity in the face. Mercy means nothing to you if you think you're righteous. It's only in contrast of understanding the depth of your depravity and your sin, understanding the necessity of your destruction because you are apart from God and outside of him is no life that you really can then finally drink down the truth that he's mercy. He's mercy. I've walked away from multiple total lost car wrecks. I have no idea how, except for he's mercy. I walked out of a life of complete brokenness, I mean, just destruction, perversion, and drugs. I was a wreck, I was done, I was a throwaway. But he's mercy. Do you know him that way? It's who he is. It's who he is. He's mercy. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, or compassionate. Do you know him as the God of compassion who understands you? He understands your brokenness. He understands your frame. He understands your propensities. He understands your failings. He understands your lusts. He understands that you want him and at the simultaneously you want sin. He understands and he's calling you to know him, to be delivered from that ironic Test in your soul. Compassion. It means I get you. I get you. Do you know that? Do you know him? Do you know what he's like? Or does he stand over you in your prayers and he's saying, how could you? How dare you? That's not compassion. That is unrighteous judgment. No, he stands over you. He goes, I understand. Look at the cross. I understand. Have you seen my son? I understand. Look at the crown of thorns. Look at the beard ripped from his face. I understand. The Lord, the Lord God, 
merciful, compassionate, long-suffering. Here's the thing. That English word long-suffering, it does not in any way do justice to what God is saying of himself. Because what he's saying is he's slow to anger. See, God never suffers in being patient. Hear me. He is patience. So you and I, when we wait long, we go, like, come on, man. How long is it going to take? Do we just get frustrated? We, we have to suffer long. He doesn't suffer when he's waiting. He just looks at you and goes, I'm slow to anger. I'm not getting upset with you. I understand. I'm not going to throw you away. I remember one time I was in my office and I had this young girl. She was cussing me out. F you, F this, F this whole thing, F God. And she was yelling this at me. And I said, I said to the Lord, I said, I'm done. And he said, I stretched out my back for you and took a beating. Would you stretch out your back for her? And I said, but God, you hear? She's cursing me. She's cursing you. He goes, yeah. He goes, you can give up on her. This is nobody y'all know. This is 25 years ago. <laughs> you can give up on her, but just give up on her when you'd want somebody to give up on you. not throwing you away. He didn't throw your friend away. The one that's backslidden right now, he didn't throw them away. Mercy, compassion, slow to anger, abounding in goodness. That's my favorite word in the whole play, in the whole list. It's this Hebrew word, chesed. Some of you know Hazen and Hannah Stevens, their daughter's name is, we call her Kesed. They get it from the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. It means loyal love. We don't have a word in the English language that is this word. This is love that fastens to you, that believes in you, that fights for you, that goes, goes to battle for you, that hopes in you. It's the, it's the explanation that's in 1 Corinthians 13. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love that never fails, loyal love. When Jesus says, go and learn what this means to the Pharisees, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, that word mercy is chesed. I just want loyal love. I want to give it and I want to receive it. See, the real question about your Christianity is, he loves you. Have you loved him back? Because that's loyal love. Abounding in chesed. Abounding in loyal love.
He never threw you away. He never gave up. Abounding in goodness, abounding in loyal love, abounding in truth. He'll never manipulate you. That's abounding in truth. He'll never bait and switch you. He'll always be honest with you. Sometimes he can't tell you everything because you can't handle it, but he'll never deceive you. He's always real with you. He's always true to you. Keeping mercy for thousands. He repeats chesed right here. That word keeping, it means preserving. Preserving chesed, loyal love for thousands. But it's not just thousands of people. It's thousands of generations. It's stated that way throughout the Old Testament. He keeps mercy for thousands of generations. He preserves mercy. He fights for mercy. He makes sure and guards mercy for thousands of generations. Let me tell you something about him. He's safe. He's safe. You can take all your garbage and put it right there in front of him. You can come running to him no matter the trash you've been into. You can have the filth of your sin and rebellion all over you and run right to him. He's safe. That's why when I look at how the church treats people that are in the worst sins with this this judgmental, holier-than-thou, ready-to-doom and condemn, I go, oh my God. They're using his name, but they have no concept of his nature. They don't know him at all. Keeping mercy for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. I can't go through that. That's three different types of sin. Stuff you knew, stuff you didn't know, stuff you did on purpose, stuff you didn't, you did involuntarily, stuff you got passed down to you. But then he says this interesting thing that almost feels like the Jenga piece at the bottom of the puzzle and pulls the whole Jenga thing down. He says this, by no means clearing the guilty. And at a glance, that seems like a contradiction, because didn't he just say he's keeping mercy for thousands of generations? How can you not clear the guilty? There's one kind of person who's outside the bounds of what God can do with mercy. One. The person who says, 
I don't want your mercy. Because he doesn't violate a human will. He gives honor and dignity to every human. This by no means clearing the guilty. He's talking about the unrepentant guilty. The guilty that wants sin and rebellion and not him. The only one that's beyond the boundaries of his mercy are the ones that say, I don't want your mercy. And then he says this, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Sounds so severe. Sounds at a glance like, dang, the kids are going to be paying for stuff the fathers did. That sucks. But that would be wholly unjust, wouldn't it? A kid not yet born paying for the alcoholic father's sins? Well, in Exodus 20, when God explains himself, he says this exact same phrase, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. The only child that's experiencing the sins of their father is the child who's rejecting and hating God. Then what happens is that child becomes the emblem of the father's sins. That's why when you see an alcoholic dad and he has an alcoholic son and then they have that alcoholic son has an alcoholic grandson and you see the same sin pass in generations, it's because those generations have all rejected God, hated him, said no to his mercy, and now the very same sin that they hated is now repeated. It's what Jesus described when he said, whoever sins you forgive will be forgiven, but whoever sins you don't forgive will be retained. You want to fall into the same sin as the, the generation before you, just don't forgive them. And you'll retain those same sins. It's why alcoholic children a lot of times have alcoholic parents. Drug-addicted children have drug-addicted parents. And what you see in the successive generations is not just the same thing repeated, but it's repeated and then multiplied. And it works the exact same way with righteousness. You get a righteous parent. They train their children in righteousness and to love God. And the very thing that their children experience is a multiplied effect of their parents' righteousness. So three and fourth generations later, you have this righteous progeny that has been living in the knowledge of God, that's been living pure and holy. And they don't look anything like the society because they've been given themselves to the love of God. The problem is in the church, we've mostly trained religion and religious actions, dead religion, instead of love and mercy and righteousness. I want you to note something. I'm wrapping up here. How many generations does he keep mercy for? How many? Thousands. How many does he keep mercy for? Thousands. How many does it follow the sin of those that hate? Three or four. Do you see the contrast? God isn't up there ready to judge everybody, ready to smite everybody, ready to condemn everybody. He is up there ready to be merciful to 
anybody that will call on your name. Now, what is he like when you come and pray? What's he looking at you like? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's just stand. He's here, guys. If you've seen him as mostly angry, mostly frustrated, mostly disappointed in you, this is a moment to get free from that. That's not who he is, and it's not what he's like. If you'd say to me, Billy, that's, that's been a real challenge for me. It's been how I've looked at God. There's reasons why we see God the way we do. Sometimes it's our father figures or different ones in our life that have expressed themselves in certain ways, and it's caused us to think of God in those ways. Others, it's just how we've experienced the world and what we've projected on God. And our in internal image of God has been this twisted, perverted thing that's literally an idol. If you'd say, I want to step out of seeing God as mostly angry, mostly frustrated, mostly disappointed in me. And I want to see him as the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, compassionate, abounding in kissed, abounding in truth, slow to anger keeping mercy for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, by no means clearing the unrepentant. This God is a God of justice. He will never violate the human will. If you want to see him, the truth of who he is, you want to step out of seeing him as this angry, frustrated God. I just want you to step out from where you are and just come down here. I want to pray for you. My dad used to lose his temper with me. He used to yell and he got so angry. And I, for years, I saw God that way. Just keep coming. Come on down, guys. Just spread on out. I see God in that way. He just seemed like he was always mad. And I realized that wasn't him at all. You good? The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, compassionate, Slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in kisses.
Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Father, we confess we've believed in a version of you that is not worthy of you. We confess we've made you too small. We've made you angry. We've falsely thought of you in ways that are not true of you. Father, we come to you to trade in our idols right now. We trade in our idols. God, we're sorry for believing that you didn't understand us. God, we're sorry for believing that you didn't understand, that you weren't kind. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in love. You are gracious and compassionate. There it is. Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Grace. Step right into this mercy right now. Step right out that specter of performance believing that you had to work to get him to like you believing that you had to try harder so he would accept you it's not true it's not who he is from every illusion, every delusion, every false image, every idol I've made that's not worthy of you. Set me free. Set my mind free. Let me see you, God. I want to know you. I want to know you like I know a friend. There's no need to cover what I 
so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode. Just engage, just engage with him. Let's just worship just for a few moments. Just let him minister to you here.